Good morning. I'm Phil. Some of you don't know who I am, and you do need an introduction. So I'm Phil Nauer. I have the privilege of being the uh, pastor of Echo Community Church. I have served here for just about six years. My wife, Kendra, is our children's director, and she's back with the elementary kids this morning, uh, leading them in their worship service back there. We have two boys, Chase and Isaiah, and we are happy to be part of this church family. Have a lot of good things to talk about what's going on with our church, and as we are in the process, we're in the last few days of completing all the details to be completely a sovereign church within the Assemblies of God. We've operated as a campus of Trinity Life uh, for almost seven years, or for more than seven years actually. And uh, as many of you know who have been with us, we've uh, been on that transition process to incorporate and become our own church. And Trinity is planting us and launching us. And uh, really it's just down to a few last pieces of paper, one I should have this week. And uh, we'll meet with the board today and and finish up our budget and things like that. And so really we're looking at a July 1 clean launch date. So we're really excited about all that. In the meantime, the Antichrist. So um, Revelation chapter 13 and 14 is where we will be today. I don't know how else to transition it. These are, uh, if you've read through these chapters at all, and I hope that you have, they're heavy and they are, they're rather terrifying. And there's really not a whole lot of places in here for humor. In fact, humor would be inappropriate. So we're trying to get that all out on the front end, and uh, we will dig into Revelation chapter 13 today. We've been studying through the book of Revelation. Last year, we covered the first 12 chapters. This year, this summer, we're going to finish up the book. It's written by the Apostle John. We believe it's probably the last book that was written chronologically uh, in the New Testament, right towards the end of the first century. He was in exile uh, as he was, he was the one of the 12 original apostles who did not find um, who, who was not martyred, or at least to the best of our knowledge. We believe he died of natural causes. And while he was in solitary confinement and exile, God shows up to the Apostle John and basically says, I'm going to show you some things and I want you to write them down. And out tumbles Revelation. It has been probably one of the most uh, highly scrutinized, most speculated about books because its, its subject matter is of universal interest. It talks about how... Time as we know it will wrap up. It talks about the end of the earth, the end of the age, and what comes after the end of this age. It it really covers the span of the entire Bible in a microcosm in one book. And so uh, the chapters we're covering today probably, at least in chapter 13, John leaves us a riddle that has been left unsolved really for about 1900 years. We have uh, lots of interest from people. There's a vested interest in all of us in knowing, well, what is going to, how is this all going to play out? And so we see that here in Revelation. The, the challenge is he doesn't write it very literally. It's very figurative. It's a lot of apocalyptic literature. So he uses symbols. He doesn't name names or name countries or he doesn't even put everything in a neat order, step one through 20. Although if you dig around some, you can find some people who have tried to draw out a timeline of Revelation. And it usually ends up on these pieces of paper that are like 19 feet long. They have really weird pictures drawn on them. Uh, That's not going to be how I'm going to try and approach this with you. I recognize there's been a lot of speculation over what different numbers mean, over what different symbols mean, um, and I certainly am not unaware of those different things and have spent most of my adult life studying those types of things, and I've studied them in seminary and beyond. 
Um, those are interesting conversations to have, but I don't think we'll get a lot out of speculation today. We're not going to spend a lot of time doing speculation. I'm going to do the very best that I can to help us draw conclusions that are at least pretty safe and solid and make application to them, knowing that there's a lot deeper you could dive into any one of these things. What is the actual mark? What does 666 mean? Well, is it going to be on the right hand or the forehead? What, what do the, who do the 144,000 people represent? What does the leopard mean? What does the bear mean? What does, and trying to break all those things down. Um, I know some of you subscribe to some real scholars that are absolutely sure that they know more about this than even the Apostle John did. I would just say this, beware of anybody who claims to know more than the Bible writes about any topic. Just be careful, okay? So we're going to be really careful in how we go about this, Um, but we're going to look at this this morning. So those of you that are watching on Facebook, you can like, comment, and share, leave your favorite emoji in there. If you want to, just let us know you're out there, and if you hear something you like, please share it so that we can get this message out to as many people as we can. That being said, um, here's where we left off last week. We started in chapter 13. Chapter 13 describes... John sees two beasts, and basically he takes chapter 13 and chapter 14, and he introduces to us the principal actors that are going to be involved in the end of humankind as we know it. So the first part of Revelation summarizes pretty much what we see in the whole Bible. It says there has been an age-old struggle between good and evil, between God and Satan, and it started even before creation. You had Lucifer as an angel in heaven, and Lucifer decided he wanted to replace God. He wanted a godless heaven. He wanted to be in the place of God and remove God because he thought he could do better. So he rose up against God. We learn this in the Old Testament and Job and some other places that allude to it. He was unsuccessful in toppling God, but he was successful in deceiving even a third of the angels. And if he was successful in deceiving angels, don't think that he couldn't deceive you too. Okay, he's good at it. He's very good. So God banishes Lucifer from heaven. Lucifer falls along with a third of the angels. Lucifer becomes Satan. The angels are his demons. Satan doesn't give up. He couldn't topple God, so he goes after God's creation next. And we see the next battle show up in the Garden of Eden. And Satan enters the scene in the form of the serpent, and he goes after you know, God's creation, he goes after Adam and he goes after Eve and he's successful in deceiving them and convincing them they should topple God out of their heart that they know better than he does. This has always been his MO, remove God from being the center of your life after all you know better. And he succeeded there and because of that, sin entered the world. But God didn't give up, God struck back, God sent his own son into the world and all through the Old Testament we see Satan knew about what God's plan was to send Jesus into the world to take on human form. And he tried time after time after time to destroy Israel through idolatry, through paganism, through, uh, through uh, genocide, through all different kinds of methods. And somehow, someway, God preserved this lineage. And Jesus was born. And even then, the enemy tried another genocide. Jesus escaped with his family to Egypt. He lived the life that we should have lived without sin. The enemy came to him and tempted him in the wilderness. The enemy tempted him in the Garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus defeated the enemy battle after battle, time after time. And even when Jesus died on the cross, if he would have stayed dead, the enemy would have won. But Jesus, when he rose from the dead, achieved the ultimate victory over Satan and made his doom secure. And Satan has known since that point that one day 
he would be exterminated, but he has not given up. So since he couldn't thwart God and he couldn't thwart Jesus, and we read that in the first part of Revelation, we see that imagery played out between the dragon who was Satan, the woman who was Israel, and the child of the woman who was Jesus. He, Satan's trying to track them down and kill them, but then he, he just can't, and now there's a sea between him and the woman. He can't chase them any further, but he's not going to go down without a fight. So now, from that point until where we sit today and up until the end, Satan is going to turn all of his anger against God on the followers of God on Christians. And so that's what we've seen play out through history. In fact, if you would have read Revelation in the first century, you would have said, we're living in this right now. If you would have read Revelation in the 600s, 700s, you would have said, we're living in this right now. If you would have read this in the 1800s, you would have said, we are living in this right now. If you read it in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s and 90s, everybody throughout history has read this book and say, I see signs of this going on everywhere. Why? Because this system, this fight, this fight, this animosity has been going on <laughs> since before created time. But what Revelation shows is that it's going to escalate to more savage proportions than we've ever seen before, and then the end will come. And then the end will come. And so what we have is up to this point, we have Satan now turning all of his attention towards the followers of Christ and doing everything that he can to annihilate us. In other words, he's not as concerned with you renouncing your faith. He wants to kill you. He either wants to get you to renounce your faith, and if you don't do that, he wants you dead. And so that's what we see. That's just as blunt as I can make it. That's what we've seen. And what we see in Revelation is this is all building, building, building to some final showdown between God and Satan, good and evil. And we're going to see that in chapters 15, 16, and 17. Okay, we're going to start moving in that direction. We've seen everything ramping up up to chapter 12. And in 13 and 14, he stops and he says, and here are the people that are going to be involved in chapter 13. Here's how this is really going to go down. And then in chapter 14, he gives us a table of contents for chapters 15, 16, and 17. So last week in chapter 13, we see the beast standing on the shore of the sea, the woman and the child get away, and now he turns all his anger against the followers of Christ. And the first thing we see that John sees is this first beast coming up out of the sea of evil. That's what we talked about last week, the beast of the sea. And other places in Revelation, this beast of the sea is given a different name. He's given the name Antichrist. He was really terrifying looking, has uh, seven heads with blasphemous names of God written on the heads. He has ten horns with crowns on each of the horns. He has the composite features of all these different animals, of a, of a leopard and of a bear and of a lion. And I was talking with someone about this before service who says that's really familiar from Daniel. And I agree. And Daniel, um, he had a dream and he saw these four different empires in the form of four different animals that came up and that would conquer the Israelites in successive years. The difference is that in Daniel, he saw four different empires, each represented one animal and one attribute of that animal. This beast is all those attributes in one. It is like the sum of all evil. You have one beast representing all these different attributes with the speed of a lion, the ferocity of a, I'm sorry, the speed of a leopard, the ferocity of a lion, the, the control of the bear. You see all these different things embodied. You see 10 horns, which are offensive things that animals use to attack. So this is going to be a beast that's really powerful and brute and probably has military force. You see crowns on the head, which indicates to us that he has the authority of kings. So whatever this beast is, whoever it is, whatever system or power that it is, it has the authority to carry out this brute anger against Christians. We read more, we read more about what he does. He has power to economically boycott Christians, to physically uh, put them to death. He's given all this authority from the dragon, but he's given permission to use it from God. God permits it for a period of 42 months, whether this is literal or figurative, 
I'm not exactly sure what I do know is that God says, here's the time you can start and here's the time that you can stop. Not one minute sooner, not one minute later. God is still in charge. And 42 months is a long time when you're in it. But in the span of history, it's not that long. But it is a very intense period of time. But he doesn't get to go any farther outside of God's boundary than what God said. So we call him Antichrist. And just to bring us up to speed and take a little pressure off of me this morning, we agreed last week that we're not going to work overtime trying to figure out, is this a historical person? Is this a political system? Is this an empire? Is this somebody in the past? Is this somebody right now? Is this somebody in the future? What I said was yes or maybe to all. I believe that the spirit of Antichrist has always been (laughs) operating somewhere in the world. A spirit of anti-God because you have God's kingdom and you have the kingdom of the world and they're completely the opposite. And so if you want to use it in a more uh, heady way, you can call this secular humanism is really what it is. This idea of saying Antichrist is really about taking uh, a godless, meaning secular, this godless way of thinking and putting humanism at the top of an absolute pleasure and absolute whatever I feel is best. So you can look around right now and say any system that's trying to pull God out of things he was previously in is part of that spirit of Antichrist. Take prayer out of school. Take uh, one nation under God out of the pledge. Take things... I'm not trying to get over the top of it, but you, could, you, can, you can go into Europe where nations have taken Christian holidays completely out of their co- calendar. It's a general movement towards removing God from everything. And so why has it always been an operation? The simple argument I gave you last week is the enemy doesn't know when God's going to say the 39 months begins or the 42 months begins. So he doesn't want to be caught flat-footed, so he's kind of always had to have this system in place so that whenever he sees God says, now is the time, he's ready to go. So I think anybody in history could have said, I'm living in this now, and they probably would have been you know, right to some degree, but it's all escalating to some ultimate thing that we've never seen before. That's why there's been many tribulations, but we read in here about a great tribulation. So two big ideas that will thread through today's discussion. We'll get as far as we can and pick up next week. Two big ideas. One's a refresh from last week, but it frames the second half of chapter 13. The second one is a big idea for this week. Uh, I don't have a lot of fill-ins for you. I'm not treating this as sermons. I'm just treating it as teaching. We're just going a paragraph at a time, a section at a time. I went too detailed last week, so I'm going to stay up a level this week and just pick out a couple things knowing that I'm leaving a lot in there for you to think about on your own. But you should be reading Revelation. Revelation is the only book of the Bible that says in chapter one, hey, read me. I'm special. So you really should read this and wrestle with it. I know it might not be the best thing. I was reading it last night at like 9 o'clock again. Not a good thing to read right, not some parts of it. Not a good thing to read right before you go to sleep. I won't tell you about my dream I had last night. It was crazy. But uh, big idea number one is that in the age-old war between God and Satan, the enemy has deployed two beasts who have been given, who have been, are currently, and will continue to wage all-out attack against God's people in increasingly alarming brutality and intensity. God's people don't need to panic. Instead, we need to persevere be patient, and be faithful. That was a big theme of last week's chat, last week's teaching. We'll see it represented again this week in chapter 13 and again in chapter 14. New idea for this week for chapter 14 is this. Before time expires, every human chooses one of only two possible allegiances, loyalty to Christ or loyalty to Antichrist. The fate of the former is eternal victory, while the fate of the latter is eternal punishment. That's the best I could do. That's my best shot at this stage in my life of summarizing chapter 14 in a statement. So let's go back to chapter 13. The beast from the earth. Let's read at verse 11. Chapter 13, verse 11 through 18. Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth. 
He had how many horns does this one have? Two. The other one had how many? You're already seeing the differences? First one came up out of the... Next one comes up from the earth. Okay, first one has ten horns. Second one has two. First one looks like a composite of... He's kind of dragon-like, but also like uh, bear, leopard, lion. Okay, this one has two horns like those of a lamb. Interesting. So he looks like a gentle little lamb, but he has the voice of a dragon. So that's connecting him not to the lamb. Who do we usually think of in the Bible when we think of the lamb? We think of Jesus. So in other words, this guy kind of comes with all the gentleness and appearance, this whatever this is. Okay. Later on in, in, in Revelation, it calls this beast the false prophet. So it calls the first beast the Antichrist, and this one the false prophet. Two horns. Looks like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast, and he required all the earth and its people to worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. He did astounding miracles, even making a fire flash down to earth from the sky while everyone was watching. And with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the people who belonged to this world. He ordered the people to make a great statue of the first beast who was fatally wounded and then came back to life. He was then permitted to give life to this statue so it could speak. This is getting into really weird stuff, okay? <laughs> it says that this particular beast, this false prophet, actually is given permission to make a statue and then he can animate it. He can make the statue talk, okay? So I, I'm just acknowledging the weirdness, okay? Uh, he was permitted then to give life to the statue so that it could speak, and then the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. He required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark. Here we go. Now, this is probably one of the most speculated about three verses in all of the Bible. He was given a mark. And in fact, for some people, if you spend $19.99 or $29.99, they'll tell you who this is. They'll tell you what the mark looks like. You can download it right now in PDF form. It's great. Um, given on the right hand of the forehead. No one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name, which is a manuscript problem in the NLT. It actually should read, which was the name of the beast and the number representing his name. It's one and the same. He doesn't have a name and a number. The number is the name. The name is the number. Wisdom is needed here. No kidding. Uh, let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Have any of you ever heard any of this before? Okay. Mark on the hand, the forehead. Anytime any new technology comes out, I heard. I, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't name him. I can't, no, I can't name him. He's a big name and I can't, I just, I can't name him. But uh, maybe, maybe I'll think about that for next week. Anyway, a lot of stuff going on here. Second beast in comparison to the first, does he look more terrifying or less terrifying? Okay, I guess it depends on your imagination. When I'm thinking of, you know, ten horns and crowns and blasphemy and all this other kind of stuff, I think really scary. I think of a little lammy with two horns. I don't think that's scary until he opens up his mouth to speak and then he sounds like a lion, and that's weird. Okay. So he looks less terrifying in appearance than the first beast. However, he uses his abilities to work miracles to deceive men. So what we have here is a false prophet. He can work miracles. They're not fake miracles. They're legitimate miracles. But their power is not coming from God. Their power is coming from the dragon who is Satan. This beast is a deceiver. 
And elsewhere in Revelation, he's called the false prophet. His two horns, like a lamb, represent his attempt to convey gentle harmlessness, but he speaks like a dragon. Jesus gave a warning in Matthew chapter 7. He says, be careful. These kinds of prophets come to you in, they are, they're sheep in what? Wolves' clothing. So all through the New Testament, we see this idea that false prophets, or they're, yeah, yeah, they're, they're wolves, really. They're wolves. Yeah, if they, had wolf, if they had wolves' clothes on, you'd know them, right? If they had red horns spitting blood, you'd be like, okay, you're, you're not it. No, you are, you are really a wolf, but you look like a sheep. He says, beware, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And so we see that again. We see that again here in Revelation. We see this idea that this guy is going to be the false prophet of all false prophets, whether it's a guy, a system. Some people think it's a world religion. Um, whatever this false prophet ends up being, it has a religious component to it. Um, and I guess all that I really have time to say here is this. Whenever you, it is very difficult to distinguish between false prophecy and real prophecy, counterfeit miracles and real miracles. We would let you, you might think, if you've never had to discern between this before, that they look totally different. But they really don't. They look very, very, very similar. And if you're tuned in to who the Holy Spirit is and you have his discernment operating within you, you can tell the difference between the two. If you don't walk close to Jesus, you'll be deceived. All I would say to you is this. Whenever you see miracles, always watch for who gets the credit. Always watch for who gets the credit. Is it the individual performing the miracle or does the credit go back to God? Because anybody who's operating not under God but who's operating with satanic power they will not in any way acknowledge the true God that we worship. And they will allow that attention to be drawn to themselves. So we see that this system historically has been very powerful. If you can work miracles, you can get a following. Okay? So, he, so that is operating here. Let's, let's, let's just trudge on from that. I do want you to see this. We now have kind of an evil triumvirate, don't we? I, I don't want you to miss, miss out on this. Christ received his authority from God the Father. And now you have the Antichrist, the beast from the sea, who receives his authority from the dragon or Satan. Okay? You also have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's whole job is to glorify Jesus. And now you have a false prophet, the beast from the earth. And his whole thing we read here is to glorify the Antichrist. So you really what you have here is, is kind of a satanic trinity. You have the dragon, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth. Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and why wouldn't he set himself up to mock the Holy Trinity of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit? So you have this, you have this whole comprehensive attack that the enemy is putting together, his leadership structure and his methods, and how he's going to go about it. He is going to use his methods, the enemy is, to create counterfeit miracles, to promise protection to people who take on his mark, who promise allegiance to him. He has the power and military authority to leverage those things, to inflict economic hardship on people who won't identify or won't surrender to the beast. Economic boycott, economic sanctions. You won't be able to buy or sell if you don't take on the beast's mark. Okay? So you have all those things going on. You actually see it goes a step farther. He will have power from the enemy from Satan, and permission from God to put to death anybody who will not take on his mark. Okay? So this is what's going on here. This is a very dire season that we see, that we see in operation here. We see his ultimate goal is to force people 
He thinks he's working his own strategy by forcing people into allegiance one way or the other. So let me probably really disappoint you by giving you a really quick take on the mark and the number, okay? There's so much more, so much more out there. I have to be very careful about what I say and what I don't say. Number one, I don't think, that, I think we're wasting time to speculate about what 666 stands for. Why? Because based on everything else I read in the New Testament, there is a rapture of the church, that happens before the Antichrist is revealed, if you read, you know, you pair it up with 2 Thessalonians. So number one, I don't plan on being here. Not my plan, okay? Number two, the word, uh, the word in Greek for Mark is actually translated five different ways into English in, in different situations. None of them indicate an actual stamp or a symbol being put on a forehead. Every time it's used to indicate some type of ownership, allegiance, possession. It's kind of like if you have like a stamp you put in a book to make sure that it belongs to you and someone borrows it, brings it back. It's like that. Whether it is an actual literal mark, whether it is some type of chip that, you know, they're putting in people's hands now when babies are born that tracks all of your movements and your, it could be, I don't know. Um, uh, you know, I would hate to suggest, I mean, I want to go back to this very well-known Christian, I think he's Christian, speaker, thinks he's Christian, that Anyway, I won't. I, I need to be very... Okay. So he... I heard this. <laughs> I won't name him because that could be very bad for me. But um, in, in, in my church in Georgia, this guy came in very regularly. And every time he came in, he's, he's, uh, he calls himself a prophet, which I always worry about that. When people call themselves... If you're a prophet, you don't need to name yourself. Like, just prophesy. You name yourself a prophet and you're wrong one time, you're somebody I need to look out for, <laughs> says the Bible. So there's just things we don't toss around casually, okay? Um, and I remember one time he got up, and I mean, we would have four or 5,000 people in our sanctuary when he would be there. And he said something about these new chips that are coming out, and they're putting them in, you know, he had this Time article here, and the U.S. News and World Report here, and he's going off about, you know, they're putting these chips in babies' hands, and now he's like, my doctor wanted to put one in my hand, and I, and I told him, you put it in my hand, I'm going to cut it out tomorrow, not me, I'm not signing my warrant to hell, and the whole place is going crazy. I'm like, whoa. Whoa, 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 Now, that's taking something here and morphing it a few times and getting, here's what I see. In chapter 14, we see another group of marked people. These are people who are marked with the name of God the Father. We see two groups of marked people. One group has pledged their allegiance to anti-God. The other group has pledged their allegiance to God. One group belongs to anti-God. The other group belongs to God. What I see here is simply this. All of history is going to push us to make a decision to either be loyal to Christ or to be disloyal to him and loyal to the Antichrist. And that will mark you one way or the other. Whether there's some literal, obvious barcode or mark or some type of technology I'm not saying that it couldn't happen, but I also don't think that changes the story one way or the other. The reality is, in this season, when the Antichrist is given permission to reign, he's going to make sure you pledge loyalty to him or it's going to be trouble for you and it will be obvious. You're going to mark yourself as his or you're going to mark yourself as God's. And if you don't mark yourself as his, you're going to be singled out and isolated, verbally, physically, economically, and you're going to suffer and strain. And there are people in the world today who are already suffering by this. There were people in John's day who, because they were Christians, were suffering economically and otherwise. Read the letters in the beginning of this book. Read about Smyrna. 
Read about Thyatira. He said, you are following Jesus and because of it, you've been poor and you're persecuted and you're starving. Because the people in the community thought it was the Christians' fault that they were having all these earthquakes. All these earthquakes. They said it's the Christians' fault because the gods are angry at them and so let's starve them out. Let's punish them. Let's put them to death. And they were already saying they could either worship the emperor and be okay or they could say, no, we belong to God and they're going to invite economic and physical and political destruction upon themselves. It was already happening. So, Pastor, are you saying that, you know, a literal mark on the hand or the forehead isn't possible? I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that really doesn't matter to me. The reality is, who do you line up with? Who owns you? Who are you loyal to? You're already marked. And the good news is that if you are loyal to Jesus Christ, there is a seal of his name on you. And this book tells me over and over and over again, you will be saved, you will be spared. He won't lose a single one. That's what the book says to me. But the book says you better line up with him because if you're not, you're also marked. Well, I've never you know, found this ugly beast and asked him to stamp anything on my hand. You don't have to. All you have to do is say, I don't want anything to do with the creator. I'm going to live life my own way. Then you belong to Antichrist. There is no third group in Revelation through the whole book. There are the ones who have been sealed because they put their faith in Jesus. They've been loyal and faithful to him to the end. And then there are the others. They are those who are no longer faithful to Jesus. They are the ones who were never faithful to Jesus. It seems like John lumps them both into the same category. But the reality is this is you're already marked. Might not show on your hand or your forehead. Listen, at the end of the day, I don't care what you stamp on my head. I don't care what you do to this or that. My heart belongs to Jesus. He knows that. You know, so if I'm at the doctor and, and, you know, they're running some test on my hand and something accidentally gets put in there or knowingly put in there, I don't think that jeopardizes my soul. I read that nowhere in the Bible. It has nothing to do with my salvation. So that's my quick take on the mark. I know that's probably disappointing. I'm not revealing to you the Antichrist. Why not? Because for 1,900 years we speculated on this riddle and we still don't know it. So in the next 15 minutes I can't solve it. I can't solve it either. Even some of John's closest disciples who got the letter in Revelation, who became early church fathers and wrote about it. One of his closest disciples, Irenaeus, wrote about this. And he was one of John's closest friends. Now, back in, you know, back in that day, uh, they would make numeric equivalents to letters in the alphabet. And so the Jewish would have this game called gematria where they would take uh, numbers and they would write out numbers. Um, and then they would, you'd have to kind of figure out the riddle. What letter does this you know, correspond with? So you've got six and a six and a six. And people throughout history have tried to do gematria with it. And they've come pretty close. But every name they've come up with, they've still had to change one or two letters just to make it fit the name. It was either, one commentator wrote, it was either the least effective riddle ever or it wasn't meant for us to be solved. All I know is that seven is the number of perfection. And you've got the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and they are perfect, perfect, perfect. The enemy has tried, but he's always fallen short. You got six, six, you got failure upon failure upon failure. No matter how close that it gets, no matter how, how much. So to me, it doesn't really, it doesn't really impact my but some of you are like, but he says, let the person who has wisdom solve it. I want to be wise. I want to get the prize. Well, you can spend a lot of time speculating on that number. What are you going to do if you figure it out? And write a book? Do a podcast? How does that affect the way you live today? I'd rather you spend your time not focusing on the Antichrist, but focusing on Christ. I'd rather you not get seduced by his mystery and start trying to figure out who he is and learn more about him. What does it matter? You keep your heart focused on the real deal. 
okay? Chapter 14. All right, chapter 14, let me read to you. I left a whole bunch out there. Well, there's plenty on you to think about later. It'll be good bedtime talk tonight. Okay, chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. It got pretty heavy in chapter 13, so John breaks it up and gives us a really nice scene. We see the, the real lamb. And the 144,000. Then I saw a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, let me pause here for a second. Don't we see another group sealed here? There's 144,000, a symbolic, not a literal number, I believe. Okay, otherwise, we're going to be competing with each other to get in, right? Okay, 144,000. They have a mark, they have a seal, don't they? And where is it? On the forehead or the right hands, which in the Jewish law, you were forbidden to put anything on your right hand or your forehead. So if this is a literal mark, this is, this is really kind of crazy. What we know, they're sealed, means protected, means their ownership and their allegiance. It's God's seal on them, meaning you don't touch this. This is my property. They belong to me. Do not mess with or you mess with me. They're sealed. They're, and then we see the lamb. Is he sitting on the throne? What's he doing? He's standing. That's important. He's ready to act. They see the lamb. He's standing. Where is he standing? On Mount Zion. There's another two-hour conversation. Is this the literal Mount Zion? Is this the hilly area in southeast Jerusalem? Is this the temple mount in Jerusalem? Is this the whole city of Jerusalem? Is it all of Israel? Is it all of Israel plus the northern territories? I don't know. Also, of the seven passages in the New Testament that talk about Mount Zion, five of them talk about the Mount Zion that's in heaven. It uses it figuratively. So is this on earth or is this in heaven? If you read Hebrews and you read Galatians, Galatians 6, it talks about Mount Zion being part of heaven and it is actually like superimposed and like a fourth dimension of what we currently live. And so all the Christian conspiracy theorists that think we're living in a digital simulation point to that verse. And I kind of laugh, but the more that I look into it, the Bible seems, we think heaven is very remote. It's in a galaxy far, far away. But there is some clues in the New Testament. I'm way off track here. I'm so sorry. I've read so much. It's just tumbling out. I apologize. There are some clues in the New Testament that suggest that heaven may be much closer than we think that it is. It's actually like a, I'm going to use the best term I can use, like a fourth dimension, that it's actually very near. We just can't quite, we can't see it with our eyes. So there's some people who think this is a point where God starts peeling back that dimension. And we see that heaven is not actually remote. Heaven has been in some dimension operating around us really closely all the time. I don't know. But it's really interesting. But I don't know. All I know is that now we see the lamb standing ready to act. And we see with him 144,000, which represents the redeemed. Who are these 144,000? Is it the same 144,000 from chapter 7 that were the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel that were sealed prior to the Antichrist coming to power and they were protected and they weren't martyred while all of the other people that took on the name or didn't take the name of the beast were martyred? I don't know. A lot of people think so. Think it's the same group of people. There's a lot of good arguments for it, that this 144,000 was the same as the 144,000 we saw in chapter 7. What that would mean is that, look, Jesus lost no one. The 144,000 he started with, he still has. He didn't lose a single one. Remember his prayer? Uh, in, I think it was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, I have not lost any of the ones you've given me, not even one. There's another possibility that it doesn't represent that 144,000 because it doesn't says it's it doesn't here say it's the 144,000 it's just 144,000 there's another possibility that it's just a bigger term 
that it means all of the redeemed. And what does that mean? If God seals you, you have nothing to fear. In either case, if you've taken on the seal of Jesus and you've aligned with him, whether you face physical death at the hand of the Antichrist or you face it at natural causes or you rapture, if you've put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ, his keeping power is something you can put rest assured with. He can keep you. What are they doing? They're joining the angels. They're singing a song. And here's where people think we're going to be in heaven playing harps. Okay? This is, this is where it comes from. I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of mighty ocean waves or the rolling of, or the, or the rolling of loud thunder. Um, isn't that in How Great Thou Art somewhere? Oh, no, that's I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. But I, rolling thunder. It was like the sound of many harpists playing together. This is where people think. When I go to heaven, I will become an angel. I'll be assigned a cloud. I'll spend all of eternity playing a harp. In what parallel world is that appealing? I don't want to sit on a cloud for all of eternity in a costume that I had to wear when I was in the fifth grade Christmas pageant playing harp music. I mean, harp music is nice, but for eternity? No, thank you. Please note, this is not the redeemed playing harps. He, He hears what sounds like harp music. So let's not take John hearing something that sounds like harp music and translate that to saying that in heaven we will become angels who will do nothing but play harps. That, okay, that's not where that's coming from. Are you with me? Okay, so when we go to heaven, we do not become angels. Angels are angels. We do not become angels. Okay, you don't get your wings and look down. That, that's not that's not what the Bible's teaching us. Nor will you be uh, sentenced to eternity of playing a harp. It's just what it sounds like. This great choir of angels sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the living beings and the 24 elders. That verse gives steam to the people who think this is happening in heaven, not necessarily literally on earth, because it's a repeat of a scene we see earlier in John where he gets to go to heaven and he sees the beasts and the elders, and that's actually happening in the throne room. So this is the throne room of heaven that we're seeing. Whether it's actually up in heaven or over heaven or in the fourth dimension, not sure. All I know is that it is time for us to start peeling back the layers and things are about to escalate really quick. Business is about to pick up. History is about to wind up. Jesus is not sitting. Now he's standing. And surrounding him is all the worship. The theme of the song is victory and redemption because anybody who's been saved has overcome some stuff. And we're the only ones, the Bible says, that are able to sing this song because we've overcome. The ones who haven't aligned themselves with Jesus have not overcome. We've overcome, and that's why we're the only ones, John says, gets to sing it. And worship is surrounding Jesus. He stands up, and he's getting ready to act. This great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of heaven with God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They have kept themselves as pure as virgins, following the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from among the people of the earth as a special offering to God and to the Lamb. They have told no lies there without blame. I'll land on this point today. Here is the, the, here is the cause of debate, concern about the 144,000. We've got this kind of weird description of them here. It says they've ki- the 144,000, whether they were the ones from chapter 7 or whether it represents the church or all the redeemed or people who have lost their lives during the tribulation and now are resurrected. And they're- now we get, it says they've kept themselves pure as virgins, following the Lamb wherever he goes. In other translations, it says they've not been defiled with women or uh, they've not been defiled with prostitutes. 
They've not committed adultery, some other versions say. And then we get, you know, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They've been purchased from among people on the earth as a special offering God unto the lamb. They've told no lies or without blame. And some people read that and say, and I'm telling you, throughout history, this has tripped a lot of people up. Because what are we supposed to make out of it if they it says they're, they're, they're virgins? Throughout history, some people read that very, very, very literally. And they say, okay, he's referring to a special group of, let's call them super saints. These are the, there's a ranking of Christians and there's an upper echelon, the super saints. And they are the 144,000. And entrance into that has some prerequisites. Number one, you have to be a virgin. This is why there are many people throughout history who have believed that celibacy or even becoming a eunuch are the way to go to be in that group. Okay? And that's a pretty high statement. You do have some other things where Jesus, Jesus affirms eunuchs. Paul says if it's possible, don't get married because it's easier for you to give your whole life to serving Jesus if you don't have a family. So you've got some steam thinking these are actual virgins. Here's the big problem with that. That would mean that any sex between married couples absolutely defiles you. And that is completely, and some of the husbands and wives are really relieved today. This is, this is completely in contradiction to what Jesus talks about with marriage, what Paul talks about with marriage, when he holds up being married and the relationship between a husband and wife as the highest form of what God intended on the earth. So it's not necessarily, because if it means that these are literal virgins, then the Bible really contradicts itself about sex in the context of marriage. If you get married and you have sex with your spouse, then that eliminates you from being a super saint. That's a tough, tough, tough choice to make, right? So I don't think that's what it's saying. Could it possibly mean that it's just specifically those people who have not entered into sexual sin, like adultery or fornication or any other of the kinds of sexual sin that the Bible describes? So these might be people who are married, but they've never committed any kind of sexual sin. Well, that's also possible based on the interpretation. The problem is then you're setting up a hierarchy and you're saying these couple sins are above and You can stumble in all kinds of other areas, but if you stumble on these two, you can't be a super saint. That doesn't seem to make sense. Here's the other interpretation I think makes the most sense. All through the New Testament, we see this imagery of the church being the bride, waiting for our groom, who is Jesus. You see this imagery. And all through the imagery, mostly written by the Apostle Paul, we read these things about Jesus is returning for a bride who is described as how? Do you remember some of the descriptions? Without spot or wrinkle, which isn't a hymn somewhere. I know that it is. Without, I used, I, when I was little, I thought it was spot or wrinkle. And now it's spot or wrinkle. But yeah, Jesus is returning for a bride that is pure. That has not given herself to this beast. That has not slept with all these other religions or ways of thinking he's returning to receive his church and they will be presented to him as blameless as pure as virgins that were purchased from the earth they've told no lies they're without blame now if you're ever going to be pure and spotless enough to be received by jesus you and i can't do that i'm broken i'm not pure i'm not spotless i'm not no matter how hard I try but I want to be part of that group I want to be part of the group that says I am waiting for the return of Jesus and that is going to usher me into an eternity of being with him I want to be the one who says when it all goes down and the wrath of the enemy is being poured out against the followers of Jesus I want to know that my heart is sealed that whether I face death or I'm spared from death in, in, in that moment that I am saved. I want to be part of the 144,000 but I can't earn my way in. I'm not good enough. The beauty is if you're ever going to be that kind of pure 
then you can't do it. Jesus has to. Jesus has to. And how does that happen as our worship team returns? You have to bow your knee to somebody. You're either bowing your knee to anti-God or you're bowing your knee to Christ. We sang about it earlier. We sang about it early, earlier about lead me to the cross, Lord, I lay me down. Me. At the root of anti-God is me. It's putting me in the place where God wants to be. It's what the enemy has always been doing. He tried to put himself in God's place in heaven. He tried to get Adam and Eve to put themselves in God's place in the garden. He tried to get Jesus to put himself in God's place when he tempted him in the wilderness and said, I'll give you all the power and all the authority. You just have to bow your knee to me. He tried it again in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he failed every single time. Or he succeeded every single time. He succeeded. He succeeded. You and I are the ones. We fail. But isn't it beautiful to see this is how John is shown what redeemed people look like in the eyes of our Father. God is painting this vision. God's letting John see it. And when he's painting us into this vision, we don't see these broken, deformed, depressed, terrified, wistful, weak, intellectually behind crumbling beings. We see beautiful. We see spotless. We see pure. We see joyful. We see victorious. We see singing. We see singing songs of victory like what Suba talked about earlier. We feel our hearts being filled filled with gratitude even in the midst of all the different storms going on. The way God represents his sealed, his redeemed, and these pictures are those who are not cowering in the darkness but who stand with Christ victorious. You get to choose in which group you belong. You get to choose. Are you going to be marked by the enemy? Are you going to be marked by Christ? You choose. Many of you have made that choice already. But maybe you haven't. Or maybe you say this, up to this point I've been choosing not God. Because some people say, well, I would never choose against God. Well, if you're choosing not God, that's against God. If you're not for him, you're against him. Pastor, that's kind of offensive. Wait till next week. We have to talk about fire and brimstone. That's even more offensive. It really is. It's no fun to talk about. None. I'm not trying to offend you, but if, if this little moment gets you to think a little bit differently, I want you to know none of us are good enough on our own merit to say I'm not going to do the God thing, but he'll still accept me. None of us are be that good. Only one person ever has been. He submitted to God anyway. I want to give you that opportunity this morning. I don't want you to read these verses with terror. I want you to read them with hope. I want you to read them with encouragement. I want you to read them soberly. I want you to read them with seriousness and thoughtfulness. But I don't want them to terrify you. I want you to invite Jesus to come and fill you and put his mark, not just on you, but in you, and change you in such a way that you will allow yourself to be seen as pure, as redeemed, as purchased from among men without, having, without any blame being laid upon you because Jesus is your advocate. He's the one that goes to God on your behalf, and he says, I present to you Phil. And yes, the charges against Phil are true. He's sinned. He sinned a lot. He sinned with his mouth, his eyes, his ears, his hands, his life. He is sinful. He deserves death. However, here is also at the same time payment for his sins, Jesus says. 
here are, here is payment. And I demand of you, the judge, for justice. It's not right to extract two penalties from him. It's not right to take two payments. Here's payment in full to cover all of his sins. I demand justice for him. And how should God respond when the payment has been paid in full? Redemption, freedom, salvation. He's arguing to the Lord on your behalf. He's presenting to you on his behalf. Will you take him up on his offer and receive salvation today? Let's bow our heads and pray this morning. As we begin to pray, our prayer team is going to come forward quietly and find their places. So many people have emailed me or told me that uh, reading Revelation terrifies them. And I understand there's parts of it that are absolutely terrifying. We don't want to shy away from that this morning. But I want you to turn to the Lord for assurance. I want you to turn to the Lord for grace. I want you to turn to the Lord for mercy. I don't want you to live in absolute terror. I want you to live with peace. I want you to live with confidence. I want you to live knowing you're on the winning side. That begins and is sustained with a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And the simple, the simple entryway into a relationship with Jesus is as simple as ABC. Admit, believe, choose. Admit that you're a sinner, that you've fallen short of the standard that Jesus set, and we all have. That you're broken and that you're flawed. B, believe in Jesus Christ. You have to believe in him. You have to. You can't bypass that. All roads do not lead to heaven. That's a different kind of religion. There is one way to heaven, and that is through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. It means you believe he's God's son, who lived a perfect life, died in your place as your substitute, rose again victorious. And see, you have to choose, you have to choose him as your leader. Better word, stronger word is Lord. That's the biblical word, Lord. You choose him as your Lord. That means you surrender to him as your king. You bow your knee and your life to him. That means he makes the decisions and you follow. If you believe Jesus is who he says that he is and that he loves you, then you'll have no trouble trusting his leadership in your life. Wives who know their husbands trust, wives who trust their husbands don't struggle to let him be a leader. Kids who trust their parents don't struggle to let them be a leader. Employees who trust their employers don't struggle to let them be their leader. It's when we doubt the character of the people that lead us when we struggle. If you trust Jesus' character to save you, you can trust his character to lead you. So this morning, if you want to make that decision, here's the simple prayer. You can pray right after me. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I am broken. I am flawed. I believe you, Jesus. I believe you're God's son, that you came to the earth, you lived a perfect life, you died on the cross as my substitute in my place. You made payment for all of my sins. And that payment was accepted by God. And the receipt of that payment was your resurrection from the dead. I choose you to be my Lord. I receive forgiveness and payment for my sin. I receive you into my life. I receive your marking your aroma, your attitude, your emotions. And I stand in you pure, spotless, clean, renewed, not because of my hard work in cleaning myself up, but because of your selfless sacrifice out of love for me. In your mighty name I pray, amen.